I mean, I've interviewed hundreds of whistleblowers in all walks of life. I have never encountered an organization as vicious in its treatment of whistleblowers as the NHS. We've just published another article about bad behavior being exposed. A new feature on bmj.com, the whistleblowing drama behind Estella's suspension from the ABPI, tells the tale of how a whistleblower tried to make a change, but was ignored by the company. Welcome to the BMJ Podcast, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Now the story of Estella raises the perennial question with whistleblowing. Why is it that a company can hear what's wrong and yet ignore it? One person who thought a lot about that is Margaret Heffernan. She's a CEO and author. She wrote the book, Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril. I caught up with Margaret at Risky Business to ask her about the culture that leads to willful blindness. My name is Margaret Heffernan. I'm an entrepreneur, uh, CEO, and the author of Willful Blindness. And it's Willful Blindness that you are here talking to us about today. Now, you started your talk with um, Warren's story, um, a case that happened in Texas. Could you could you summarize that for us? Yeah, Warren Briggs was an engineer working at a uh, refinery site in Texas City, in Texas, and. Um, while he was on duty, a huge explosion took place in which 15 people died, over 100 were injured. And it's become a kind of classic industrial accident that manifests virtually all the features of willful blindness. And I used it really at the conference today because I think it illustrates the degree to which in many, many cases, these kinds of accidents, whether they're in hospitals, whether they're in schools, whether they're in companies, you know, have a lot of salient shared characteristics. Mm. And within that case, there were, you know, safety issues or other things, but a big part of it was the human factors, right. the fact that this man had effectively accumulated an enormous sleep debt. Right. So Warren was doing uh, 12-hour shifts. He had worked 30 days in a row. The Chemical Standard Safety Board estimated he had an accumulated sleep deficit of a month and a half. And, you know, and we understand now the impact of fatigue on the brain. And what it means is that you do literally lose the capacity to think. So if you miss a night's sleep, you're cognitively at about the same level of functioning as being over the alcohol limit. Um, and it means that you can kind of get through really simple things, but you can't do any kind of what we would think of as real thinking. Mm. So when the alarm in, um, in Warren's control panel goes off, he can think, how do I make it go away? But he doesn't really have any more the cognitive capacity to ask how, what could be happening that is making this alarm sound. Mm. And you were describing the corporate environment mm. in which he was working. It was right. one where there'd been huge expansion and it was a really complex system and, you know, yeah. the various targets. And I was listening to that thinking, at no point would anyone have been thinking about measuring or or even considering someone's sleep debt. No, um, no absolutely that. not. And also, I mean, it was generally believed 
and it's hard to know in this distance of time. But it's generally believed that the chief executive at the time, John Brown, didn't think that safety was sexy. So there were going to be no kind of corporate brownie points to be won by raising it as a significant issue, even though what the data showed was that BP had a higher uh, level of fatalities than its comparable you know, than other uh, other companies in the industry. Mm. And I suppose what you're describing there is this corporate culture, um, which didn't encourage people to to talk out to 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 think about safety. Do you think that culture is that sort of fundamental bit of it, or is it more to do with, you know, I don't know, external standards or, or something? It's all kinds of things. So it's definitely culture, but I think when you call it that, you don't, you haven't really said very much, right? The culture is full of all kinds of beliefs. So there's the belief that talking about safety isn't going to get you very far. Right. There's the belief that working at Texas City isn't really very glamorous, and so the executives who are there are there for as short a period as humanly possible. So you have very little continuity of management, so very little expertise. There's a belief that you that if you cut costs, you make the organization more efficient. And one of the ways that they cut costs is that they start outsourcing a lot of work to contractors who therefore don't know the site as well. So there are a whole bunch of belief systems operating within the culture. And I think, you know, wrapping all of those up is the strategic belief that if you're in the oil and gas business, you've got to be big to be taken seriously and to be able to achieve real heft in the marketplace. So Brown goes through years of mergers and acquisitions, buying up lots of oil and gas companies, trying to combine them, right? So that creates all kinds of friction and within the organization. It also means that he accumulates, the company accumulates a large amount of debt, which means they have to go into large amounts of cost cutting, which means that, you know, they're cutting everything down to the number of pencils that people are allowed to order. So you have an organization, first of all, in incredible turmoil, right? You have huge turnover of people, huge outsourcing of work, huge numbers of cuts, and all being done by hugely exhausted people who are being asked to multitask at a level that no human brain can consider. And all of this is driven by this kind of ideological belief or the business model, which says we got to be big to be important. Mm. And at no point, as far as I can see, does anybody question this. Mm. So you have huge kind of conformity around this basic belief that bigger is better, even though, you know, there's a mountain of evidence showing that 50 to 80% of mergers and acquisitions fail to achieve the strategic goals for which they're executed. So, you know, on some level, and bear in mind at this point in the UK, Brown is being celebrated as one of the greatest business leaders Britain has ever had, which means nobody's going to question him because he is referred to, you know, as the, the Sun King because, you know, the sun is the BP logo. So he has a kind of um, almost regal standing. He is surrounded by a court of so-called senior leaders who, lo and behold, all pretty much look like him, sound like him, and have exactly the same educational background. So there is no diversity of thought in this leadership team either. 
So this is, you know, an absolute epitome of an accident waiting to happen. And everybody can see that this is happening. It's not a secret. But nobody feels responsible for doing anything about any one part of it. I think the fascinating thing there is, as you've identified, it all seems to flow from this kind of, this belief or, or set of beliefs. Um, and beliefs aren't necessarily particularly evidence-based or, or based on, on, on very much. And they're also very difficult to change. Right. I mean, I think um, when you're talking there, it, it reminds me of some of the stuff, we don't really talk about ideology in, in organisations, in mm. business, in healthcare or whatever, but we do talk about it in politics. Right. And equally in politics, we see that these these sort of tribes formed where um, people look at some evidence, they and they can draw really different conclusions mm, of course. on it based on their pre-existing um, mental models. Exactly, yeah. and that sort of that's um, that motivated reasoning is kind of self-reinforcing, and it's very much amplified by the tendency people have to surround themselves with people like themselves. So overwhelmingly, you know, if asked to choose the people they want to work with, they'll tend to choose people with similar kind of belief systems. And, um, and we know that in that respect, all of us are biased. And it isn't something that we're conscious of. It isn't something we do deliberately. But I would argue it is something we can deliberately fight, which is I think we can think about who can I have around me who's going to challenge me. And how, if I'm in a position of responsibility, how do I ensure that there is the time and the safety and the permission to challenge? And a recognition that the challenge is a gift. That when I challenge you, it's because I'm trying to help. It's not a personal or a political attack. I want to make your thinking or decision-making better. I want to make it better for all of us. And so when you have, as you pervasively do in organizations, you know, who's board meetings and leadership team meetings I sit in endlessly. You know, you have a sort of feeling that, well, if it's all, if everybody agrees, then that must be right. And I would say, actually, if everybody agrees, first of all, why are you all here? We could just have one person. But also, what's stopping people asking more challenging questions? Because actually, that's their job. You know, the whole theory of collective intelligence doesn't work if everybody's so motivated to get along. So you often need to encourage people and sometimes specifically direct people to ask different questions. So sometimes with some teams that I work with, you know, I say, okay, so one person has to say all the reasons why this is a good idea. Somebody else has to say, why it's a bad idea. Somebody else should be asking the question, how much of this decision do we need to make today? Um, another way to think about it is what people call pre-mortems, which is if this goes wrong, why will it have gone wrong? Let's think of all the ways in which it could go wrong and then think, is there a better way to do this that might address some of those risks? So, but I think all of that hinges on people understanding that when you come together to make a decision, the goal isn't to emerge as each other's best buddies. The goal is collectively to do the hardest critical thinking you can, because that's the only way you can help each other. And that's interesting. What you've talked about there, I suppose, is kind of putting a 
formal structure in place to try and get around that sort of group effect, group thing. And I do that because there's, you know, it's been very fashionable recently to talk about psychological safety. And I buy that as a goal. I think it's phenomenally difficult to achieve. And the reason I think that is because I think people's sense of safety derives a little bit from the organization, but I think it started in childhood. I think it comes from their families. I think it comes from their schools. I think it comes from the environment in which they grew up. And I think it's actually phenomenally difficult in an organization, truly, truly to make people feel safe. I don't think that mean, that's an excuse for not trying. I think we should do our best to try. But I also think that we have to recognize that we may make people feel safer but we also need to give them explicit permission, indeed even responsibility, for asking harder questions and acknowledging that when I'm asking you really tough questions, it's not because I'm getting at you, it's because I'm really trying to reality test your decision so that you can feel better about it. Mm-hmm. And often that isn't the case at the moment. Right. I mean. The people who do stand outside that uh, that that group think, who um, do challenge, to do yeah. ask those awkward questions, um, are often vilified in, yeah. in our current systems. And I'd say one thing, because you referenced group thing, and people always forget, you know, the core of Irving Janus's theory of group thing, which is he said when people come together and agree, it uh, it forces them into more risky behavior. So the more of us agree, the more extreme the decisions we'll take. So so the fact that there's safety in numbers, right, is specifically undermined by Janice's theory. But you're right, you know, when people do start asking questions that nobody asked for, um, very often they are shunned they're interpreted as troublemakers or cranks um, or pushy. And, you know, and I have to say, um, I mean, I've interviewed hundreds of whistleblowers in all walks of life. I have never encountered an organization as vicious in its treatment of whistleblowers as the NHS. But what I've discovered is that whistleblowers start off as absolutely your most dedicated employees. You know, I interviewed Sharon Watkins, who is known as the whistleblower at Enron. Sharon loved Enron. You know, Enron had transformed her life. She went to the chairman with problems about its accounting irregularities because she trusted him and thought he could fix it. She was trying to save the organization. Uh, Bill McAleer, another whistleblower I interviewed who worked at GM and who for years kept trying to raise safety concerns, you know, said, you know, GM had taken a poor boy and made him into a really successful global executive. He felt he owed GM everything, which is why he wanted them to do the job better. So I think, you know, it's really important to, to recognize that Overwhelmingly, people who raise these concerns are doing so 
out of loyalty, out of integrity, out of a real desire to make an organization they love even better. And um, it's it, because the onus of risk is on them, the chances that they're just malicious are very, very small. It makes me wonder how many people who love the organization, who love the NHS, who see problems, end up getting sort of filtered out on the way up mm. until it is only the people who are, you know, cranky and old and, old and awkward who, who end up actually yeah. managing to break through That's that structure. Right. That's right. And I think, you know, what I see in lots of organizations is everybody knows what's going wrong, but they don't know what to do with that knowledge. And, you know, I, I, in my talk, I, talk, I quoted the statistics around organizational silence. It says, you know, 85% of people at work have issues and concerns that they don't voice. And the, the two reasons are they're either afraid, they'll get punished or misunderstood, uh, or futility, which is, well, I could, but it won't make any difference. I think the second is a bit of an ally, to be honest, because the truth is, if you don't try, you don't know. And I've done a lot of work with executives privately talking about, okay, so what do you do with this concern? There are paths you can take that are safer than others. And what they repeatedly find is that whereas they think they have to put on armor and, you know, take a cannon and blow the door off, mostly the door just swings open. The minute somebody says, I'm a bit worried about this, other people feel, oh, then I can talk about it too, because I'm worried too. So you've given permission to people to talk about it. Then you discover everybody knows about it. Then you can start solving it. Um, so I think, you know, I think this idea that, well, there's no point saying anything because nothing will happen is a kind of consolation. But it's also a sort of get out clause because you can try. And the advice I always give to people is don't do it alone. Reach out to some people in the organization you know and trust and just say, I'm worried about this. What do you think? You know, it's always possible you got it wrong. There's something, a piece of the puzzle you didn't see. But first of all, find allies. Secondly, collect more information. Third, look across the organization and say, who with authority is most likely to be interested or care about this or be responsive to it? And how do they like to be communicated with? You know, don't jump them in the hallway, right? <laughs> Think about how do I create the conditions in which it's most likely somebody's going to hear me in the way that I intend. And it doesn't mean there's a guarantee that the problem will be fixed. But here's the thing, if you say nothing, there is a guarantee that it won't. And I can see how that would be a really useful technique when you're, you want to change something that's, I don't know, not central. But if you're trying to challenge that sort of maybe central, mm. unspoken belief right. that bigger is better in right. the oil industry or whatever, right. that must be an incredibly difficult thing to do. It is, but it's interesting because I think some of the organizations I've worked with have tackled it not so much with a challenge as with an experiment. 
which is, you know, the way we're working isn't really optimal. Could we try doing something different and just see? And the uh, home care nursing um, organization in the Netherlands that I referred to in my talk is a classic example of this where Joost de Bloch, who was by training an economist, but then discovered economics was dreary, so became a nurse, mm-hmm. you know, went into nursing and, and found, you know, home care nursing in the Netherlands done the same as here. It's productized. You know, it's kind of 10 minutes on Monday, seven minutes on Wednesday, five minutes on Friday. Um, you know, it's all goals and targets and KPIs and all that nonsense. And, you know, what he felt was, hey, this is a this is a bad way to look after people. And also the nurses hated it. And so what he did, a very cunning guy, is he got a couple of nurses together and asked to meet with the uh, Minister for Health. And at the end of their conversation, she was in tears, really confronting the reality of what operating this system was like. So he said, could I have permission to do an experiment? I just want to try, see if there's a different way of doing this. Because maybe it's a terrible system, but it's the least terrible system, you know. And what he said was, I want to take 40 patients and 10 nurses, and I want the nurse's instructions to be do whatever you think is right that's it no goals no targets no kpis no schedules no bureaucracy just we trust you your nurses go for it and at the end of the experiment what he found was that the patients got better 40 percent faster and the cost went down by 35%. Now this is a staggering experiment. <laughs> and to be fair to Yoss, you know, he did not expect this is what would happen. He thought it would be better. He had no idea it would be this much better. And, you know, his organization, Björtsorg, which in Dutch means neighborhood, um, I mean, it dominates the whole home care and nursing market now in the Netherlands. Um, it's their attempts to bring it to the NHS. It's being used in Japan, their attempts to use it in the US. Um, But Yoss is very clear, you know, that every culture in which it resides, it has to kind of develop its own flavor. But it's a very cunning way, not of having an argument in theory, but actually saying, okay, if we don't think this is good and we can't really figure out from a desk what's going to be better. Let's just try some things and see what what moves us in the direction that we want to go. Mm. It's interesting. So and I'm just spitballing here, so okay. <laughs> that might not be a thing. But um, it seems like what he did there to, to leverage that change was create a sort of moral shock in, yeah. the, um, in the health minister. And, Correct. And it feels like sometimes that happens. So in the UK at the mm. moment, we just... Um, saw horrendous footage of what was happening in um, in a nursing home. Right. So these must create points at which mm-hmm. change is possible, and it's it's now would be right. a perfect time for for people to try and leverage that to right. make some of these these changes. I think that's right, but I think what's been quite striking because um, 
I think pretty much the month Willful Blindness was first published was when the horror story of Winterbourne Vale came out. And and it's like ever since the book came out, it's like there's the same NHS scandal in different permutations, you know, almost every month. And I think what's been really terrible is that to a large degree, there's been a doubling down on all the instruments of management that I think are implicated in these problems in the first place, which is um, people with power don't really like the idea of giving it up. So they're loath to flatten hierarchies. Hierarchies are only functional if you have bureaucracy, so they're loath to lose the bureaucracy. And, um, and yet I think the structure of NHS management is so profoundly flawed that however moral shocks you give it, if you keep applying the same medicine, it's not going to get better. And I think, you know, there were glimmers of hope in uh, the Francis report. And I certainly see individual NHS trusts that have taken the notion of um, speaking up really seriously, where I do see real success. Um, and I've talked to nurses who have become guardians. And what they say to me is, you can fix, if people raise the problem, very often they can be fixed. The thing you've got to do is tell the story of how they got fixed so that people realize that speaking up does lead does to change. Because yeah. nobody's going to believe it until you subject them to case after case after case where it really does make a difference. But my personal feeling is, nevertheless, there is still so much attachment to hierarchy and bureaucracy in the NHS generally and in in healthcare overall, that until that is seen as a systemic problem, which people are committed to changing, is going to perpetuate the conditions in which these terrible accidents occur. And I think, you know, part of it is the social hierarchy. And I spoke in my talk, you know, about the hidden curriculum of, of medicine where you know, if you ask medical students at the beginning of their training, you know, would they do something a bit dodgy if a consultant told them to? And they say yes. And at the end of their medical training, more of them say yes. And this is kind of unbelievable, right? But my husband trained as a physician, you know, in the NHS. He now does medical research. But, uh, you know, and I said to him, can this be true? And he said, Oh, yeah. He said, you know, medics self-select as quite conservative people. And they believe in power structures. And they also see that if they play in the power structure, they're going to do well out of it. And um, so, so until you start really grappling with the roots of that and understanding that actually, you know, in a hospital, some of the people who know most and see most are porters, cleaners, you know, all kinds of people who have no status and who may well have been outsourced, right? So they don't seem to be part of the healthcare environment. Until you recognize that all eyes and ears are collecting data that you really need to understand and you really need to hear, then you're going to be blind. You can't not be. You've been listening to Margaret Heffernan talk about why organisations become willfully blind. 
and what she thinks the NHS has to do to avoid more scandals of poor care. That interview was recorded at Risky Business. You can find out more about the conference at riskybusiness.events. I'll link from the podcast blurb. The talk Margaret gave should be available there soon, but in the meantime, there are a lot of really inspiring talks for you to listen to. That's it for this podcast. We'll be back soon with another talk evidence. We'll be focusing on transparency this time. We'll also be finding out why more women are turning away from the pill and towards alternative methods of family planning and which of those methods is most effective. If you have anything you'd like us to cover in the podcast, then please let us know. Go to bmj.com slash podcasts where you can find out how to get in touch. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.